I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about educational alternatives, identifying books that are authentically Catholic, and reconciling science and faith. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. It's frequently the case that people who have doubts about religious faith find it gratifying to claim, often quite loudly, that they believe in science. No mystical fairy tales for them, no foolish superstitions. The world and everything in it can be accounted for by natural forces with no deity involved in the process. Well, one can't deny the tremendous advances which science has brought us, but sometimes these bold protestations don't suggest clear-eyed realism as much as just a different kind of faith one that places human intellect in the role of savior. Matthew Ramage has spent a good part of his career examining the conflict between religion and science. He's a professor of theology at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, and he addresses the question of where God fits into the world of tangible reality and scientific fact in a series of videos intended to be thought-provoking for believers and skeptics alike. Professor Ramage, thanks for being with us. It is great to be with you, Bill. How is it that there's often such a deep divide between defending faith and championing science? I think people get their identities wrapped up into it. I I think having studied at a secular campus way back when, you you notice that people are committed ahead of time to the proposition that faith must be wrong. And I think you hit on the head with that comment about sometimes it requires more faith to be an atheist. (laughs) Uh, You know, because if you realize God is there, you might just change your life. You hear these stories from converts. The other side, at a faithful Catholic institution, both here and where I teach across the country, whether it's diaconate candidates or whether it's giving a lecture at a university, you hear the opposite, right? People of faith, I think there's a fear factor that Pope Benedict diagnosed quite well, that we're afraid that if, darn, if we, if we change one little way we interpret Genesis, then all of a sudden the resurrection goes out the window. And I, I've been so edified over the past couple of decades by reading people like our beloved Pope of blessed memory and and seeing that the Catholic Church has really great answers, it's not a matter of either or, but it's a both and with faith and science. So I think it'll be uh, rewarding to discuss that. Yeah, there is a a sense in which science sort of undermines faith. People seem afraid that if if we discover what holds atoms together, or if we really do confirm that there's life on other planets, that somehow that negates everything we've always believed in. For sure, and I'm even assigning C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Uh, here in about a week, we're going to read Out of the Silent Planet for my, one of my classes on the Inklings, and uh, he was open to considering this possibility. At present, my physicist astronomy colleagues tell me that we have zero evidence of it, but people like Lewis recognize that in principle, it, it wouldn't alter our faith. It wouldn't make us less significant. It wouldn't make chimps humans. 
but it is conceivable. And, and so it reminds me of a principle from John Paul II, where he spoke about how, well, faith in Scripture can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes, but science can purify religion from superstition and error. And when they're in a mutual and fruitful dialogue, my colleagues and I, who are in dis- different disciplines, can realize, okay, well, you can study the, the proto-elements of life on comets, and perhaps life came to Earth in that way. I'm a theologian. I can't tell you that. But once you present me with the data, I can help with the tradition of the Church to illumine that in the light of faith. And meanwhile, you cannot, of your own accord, inform me of how to interpret the Scriptures. We have the magisterium for that. So I've been rewarded over the years with these dialogues uh, and, and things like that question uh, that don't threaten our faith. And in fact, the Society of Catholic Scientists that I'm a theologian associate of, they've had conferences on extraterrestrial life, and there's, there are great Catholic scientists involved in that search as we speak. Darwin was the turning point, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, or really if you back up to Galileo, the, the Church has a almost spotless record with regard to science. That blemish of Galileo 500 years ago, it's a lot more complicated than the average person at a secular institution thinks. He hadn't fully proven his theory yet, but the Church came down hard on him, and later, as John Paul II would say, we did realize that fundamentally he was right about the universe, and things had to be uh, improved, obviously, but no, the, the sun is the center of the solar system, not the Earth. So there was that, but in the modern era, I don't hear many people across our country being threatened by heliocentrism or even by the Big Bang, which, as we know now, was essentially invented as a theory by a Catholic priest, Father George Lemaitre, but it's more of evolution, like you indicate. The late 1800s, for the last 150 years, this has been the problem that people bring up, and I've seen studies that point out it's the number one intellectual reason why young people leave the faith. I've not done those studies myself, but if it's not the number one, it's up there that this is going to be against our faith. People really build a whole emotional structure on doubt. Uh, if, if you talk to people who are committed to this scientific point of view and reject religion, they defend it vigorously. It isn't, it isn't a live-and-let-live kind of thing. They feel very threatened by the idea of religion. Yeah, I have definitely encountered that. And I, I think from a believer's point of view, I try to turn it back to myself and ask, well, gosh, where have I been an anti-apology? Have I provoked someone to unbelief through my lack of charity? That can happen. I think part of their issue, in addition to some people just being committed against the church, period, and irredeemably so, apart from a divine intervention, which I don't write off. But there is the idea that goes back to Augustine that we can make the faith look ridiculous to unbelievers <laughs> when we spout off claiming to know things that they know are false. And I think that is where evolutionary theory comes in. Even in high school, I don't remember much about high school, but I remember a teacher who claimed that the earth was 6,000 years old. <laughs> and it was fortunate I had a good enough of a Catholic upbringing that I didn't just drop faith. But many people hear that claim, and they know full well that that's wrong, and they'll lose it. So I've had students over the years come to my office because we homeschool, but they, they were homeschooled also, and they'd had a, a textbook from a Protestant 
and they thought this, and they were on the verge of losing their faith. So I think sometimes we are our own worst enemies, and as my wife says, we can back people into a corner of choosing against faith or reason, and that's a battle that reason usually wins or ideology wins. So what I like to try to do is open people up to these possibilities, to the, the full breadth of reason, like Pope Benedict would say. Yeah, t- tell me about this video series you're producing. How do you approach this topic in that format? Benedictine just had this idea about a year ago to do videos, and we've really been on a, a great uh, crusade, is not the right word, but a, just a great endeavor to beef up our media presence, and they're doing a wonderful job. For listeners, there's, there's some great video series, these Benedictine dialogues they're doing. I've done one or two of them myself. The idea was, let's have an outreach. You know, we want to bring students in. Our mission is really in-person education. It's a residential college. But there is a, a thing there where we had to outreach. And so uh, I, I was just doing this anyway. It was teaching nothing new in that series. I just wanted to distill it down into six half-hour videos because I know people's attention spans. I don't have the attention span for a two-hour podcast. So basically, to give a taste of what you might get in the classroom by reading the whole tradition, reading people like our biblical scholar, Pope Benedict, St. John Paul II, by engaging the true liberal arts tradition of reading across disciplines. So we begin with how you read the Bible, how do you read God's other book, the book of nature, how do those intersect with one another. Uh, We go into Genesis and some passages, how to make sense of Adam, the creation of Eve out of the rib, the seven days. And even by the end, we go into the Church's doctrine of integral ecology, which is care for the most vulnerable humans and the most vulnerable of the rest of our planet. So the the Catholic both and, caring for humans and for the rest of creation. So it's it's pretty wide-ranging in the short span that we have of those six videos. Are these available to the public? Can anybody go online and watch them? Yeah, Benedictine has an email list if you just sign up for that, and it's free. They just want to be able to introduce the mission of the college to other people. So the website, if you just Google Benedictine College Faith and Science, it'll definitely pop up. And you could tag my name, Matthew Ramage, like damage with an R onto it, and, and you as the listeners could find that pretty easily. Matthew Ramage, professor of theology at Benedictine College. Yeah, this sounds like fascinating stuff. I'm sure it would appeal to a lot of people and uh, get them thinking, get them examining some of the assumptions that uh, they may have hidden behind for a long time and maybe step out from behind them. Thanks a lot for taking time to talk about this. It was a joy. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Bill. Disillusion with public education is a major theme these days. There are all kinds of horror stories about young people graduating from high school unable to read. Worse, we hear about radical teachers lacing their lessons with leftist or transgender propaganda. Appeals to administrators and school boards have proven worthless in all too many districts. The option of charter schools isn't always available, and not every family is in a position to homeschool their kids. 
Well, Americans are nothing if not inventive. A new educational movement has appeared and is growing in presence and strength. It's called micro-schooling, and it's giving new life to a very old educational approach, the one-room schoolhouse. Carrie McDonald is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and a well-known podcaster on education issues. She's followed and written about the micro-school phenomenon, and she's here to tell us about this fascinating new trend. Carrie, thanks for being with us. It's great to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, what are micro-schools, and how do they work? Well, I think you were right in your introduction that micro-schools are very similar to kind of the one-room schoolhouses of yesteryear. They're typically intentionally small. They could be anywhere really from a dozen students up to a bit over 100 students, but the goal is to sort of cap these programs so that they're not, uh, their goal is not to become a large kind of traditional private school. They really do want that kind of smaller, more personalized, more intentional community. They are often mixed-aged, but not always. So again, back to that kind of one-room schoolhouse model, they might be lots of different ages kind of mingling together, albeit with differentiated curriculum based on a child's abilities and skills, but kind of moving away from age-segregated classrooms that we see in both traditional public and traditional private schools. Uh, yeah, and then they definitely have that, that customized, personalized curriculum. Another feature of these micro-schools and, and learning pods and homeschool collaboratives is that they tend to be very low cost, so a fraction of the cost of traditional private schools, sometimes a third or even a quarter of the cost of traditional private schools, so they're more accessible to more families. And then in many states, we now have 10 states that have universal or near-universal school choice policies that enable education funding to follow students. Those funds are often right in the price point of these micro-schools and various learning collaboratives. And I'll just say micro-schools tend to be a catch-all term, sort of an umbrella term that captures a lot of these innovative models that could be things like learning pods and homeschool collaboratives as well. How do these things come about? Is it a matter of parents getting together and forming some sort of an organization to, to organize them and fund them, or are they started by other institutions? Uh, how do they happen? Yeah, so it's really uh, entrepreneurial parents and teachers who are creating these programs. Uh, these are everyday entrepreneurs who decide that they want to see education look different and go ahead and create them. And, you know, like you mentioned, one-room schoolhouses, of course, were very much a part of our history in this country, especially in rural areas. But even more recently, you know, we had micro-schools and hybrid homeschool programs and similar models emerging way back in the 1990s. <laughs> so, you know, we think about this as a new phenomenon of micro-schooling and, and learning pods and hybrid schools over the past few years of education disruption in the wake of the COVID response. But really, this moment and movement towards alternatives to traditional schooling was emerging a few decades ago. And then all of that momentum and all of that um, interest in these schooling alternatives really culminated in 
skyrocketing interest as schools were shut down and there was a shift to remote learning beginning in 2020. And so at that time, we heard the term pandemic pod come on the scene in the summer of 2020 as spontaneous groups of families really realized that education wasn't going to go back to normal in many cases that that fall of 2020. And they took matters into their own hands and created these pandemic pods, which were very much like homeschool co-ops, often, you know, taking place in a family's home or different homes that would kind of rotate throughout the week and either parents would take terms facilitating a curriculum or they would hire an educator to facilitate that curriculum. And many of those pods evolved into kind of full-fledged microschools or, you know, kind of separate leased locations uh, in the community with several teachers and growing populations of students. So we saw that happening. You know, I see a lot of disgruntled teachers who are have been in the system for a long time, lots of veteran teachers who grow increasingly frustrated by the standardization and regimentation of traditional district schools and want to do something different, and they go off and create their own programs. And again, this was happening pre-2020. I wrote a lot about that in my 2019 book called Unschooled, but it's, again, accelerated since 2020 and is not slowing down. I can recall that in the early days of homeschooling, back, say, in the in the 1980s, there was a lot of suspicion and resistance. People were saying that these kids who don't go to school are going to be antisocial, they're not going to have any friends, they're going to be isolated. I have to assume that there are similar arguments put up against this approach, too. Well, there's a lot of overlap, I would say, um, between homeschooling and micro-schooling. In many cases, some of the micro-schools that are created today Today are operating for homeschoolers, so the, the students themselves might be considered homeschoolers, but they could be attending several days a week at this drop-off location with hired teachers up to full-time, up to five days a week as a full-time schooling alternative. So there is that overlap between homeschooling and microschooling. I will say that the homeschooling population for sure has diversified and grown over the past several decades. This again was happening prior to 2020, and now we see a homeschooling rate that that's increased 50% over the past five years. We have, you know, millions of homeschoolers now um, operating in the U.S. And again, there's that overlap with, with microschools. So I think some of those concerns around kind of socialization, yeah, I'm not sure they were ever really true. It was sort of the stereotype of homeschooling, but it's certainly not true today when we have such demographic, geographic, and ideological diversity uh, within the homeschooling and microschooling populations. And again, seeing such growth, you know, for example, I just recently had on my podcast the founder of St. John the Baptist Hybrid School in Kennesaw, Georgia, which is a Catholic hybrid school that was launched in 2019 with 47 kids. So these would be kids who would be technically or legally considered homeschoolers, but they can attend this hybrid school two to three full days every week with, you know, hired teachers at the drop-off program. And then the other days they're at home or learning in their community. Now they have uh, over 120 students, K-12, to again, that kind of one-room schoolhouse feel. Um, and it's, it's growing in popularity, you know, all across the country where we just see so much more interest from parents and from teachers to do education differently. What's the legal side of this? Uh, are there regulations involved? Uh, are there uh, state demands and, and academic expectations to be met? How, how does that side of things work? Yeah, so 
homeschool and private school regulations vary by states, and so these individual entrepreneurs are complying with those state requirements. And in some states, it's easier to be a homeschooler. Other states, it's more difficult. Some states, it's easy to, to start a private school. Other states, it's more difficult. But again, these are intrepid entrepreneurs. They figure out what they need to do to comply with local and state regulations and, and go off and build their programs. If people are interested in exploring this, is there, is there any sort of organization or information source uh, where they could learn how to do it and what resources are available and the steps that have to be taken? Yeah, I mean, so microschools, again, in, is, is this umbrella term capturing low-cost private schools, homeschool collaboratives, learning pods, all kinds of different models. This is happening all across the U.S. There are estimates that there's about 125,000 microschools serving uh, upwards of 2 million students currently in the U.S. So there's for sure uh, a program in your listeners' backyard that they may not even be aware of, that there are these kind of low-cost, accessible, you know, highly personalized models. Um, so, you know, you can sort of Google alternative education options or hybrid schools or micro schools in your community, connect on social media. I'll also say that there are some wonderful organizations like the National Microschooling Center, which helps to activate education entrepreneurs who are interested in building these schooling alternatives. There's the Vela Education Fund, which is a national philanthropic nonprofit that seeks to support these out-of-system learning models. They were launched in 2019 with philanthropic support from the Walton Family Foundation and Stand Together Trust. And since 2019, they've issued micro-grants to over 2,500 of these entrepreneurial parents and teachers creating these schooling alternatives out-of-system individualized learning models, totaling over $30 million in grant funding. So there's a lot of momentum, a lot of support for teachers and parents who want to find or build an alternative to a conventional public or conventional private school. What about your work? Where can people follow your writing and maybe tune into your podcast? Thank you. Yes, you can follow me at liberatedpodcast.com. It's a twice-a-week podcast where I interview these everyday entrepreneurs, these parents and teachers who are building these individualized models. I'd say the vast majority of the entrepreneurs that I interview are former public school teachers who decide that they can do education better than in the conventional system, and, and there's a lot of interest from families for something new and different. Carrie McDonald, Liberated Podcast, and also the Foundation for Economic Education. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks again for having me. serious about growing in faith often turn to Catholic books for clarity about doctrine or moral guidance or spiritual encouragement. But what actually makes a book Catholic? How can you know that what you're reading is an accurate, authoritative representation of what the Church teaches and what Christians actually believe? Jennifer Waldike and her daughter Kate are a Catholic mother and daughter who share their spiritual journey on YouTube. They've tackled the difficult process of discerning authenticity in books presented as Catholic. And Jennifer is here now to examine this issue, one that's often a source of disagreement and confusion. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks, Bill, for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Now, there are a lot of books out there that are, well, that call themselves Catholic, but maybe they're a little questionable. How do you approach trying to discern what are the good and what are the not so good? Well, we definitely look at the author. Is the author Catholic? Is the publisher Catholic? We definitely start with that. Sometimes we'll check on the inside to see if the book has the imprimatur or the nihil obstat, which show that they've been vetted by you know a Catholic clergy member and that they're okay for Catholics. Yeah, I'm a member of the Catholic Writers Guild. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization, but they also give a seal of approval uh, looking at the same kinds of concerns. How did you get started in this whole thing? Well, I'm a volunteer at our church library, and we do get a lot of donations. So we are in a perpetual process of screening books that are donated to see if there are books that we want to put in the library that, you know, the whole parish will come in and read. So we have to be very careful. When you're looking at a book and you get a little feeling that maybe something isn't quite right, what, what are you concerned about? What are the things that set off that warning in the back of your mind? We're definitely concerned about, is this book going to lead the reader astray? We don't want to have a book that's, you know, really, you know, like a New Age book in disguise. You know, it looks Catholic. Maybe there's a Catholic picture on the front. But then when you start reading it, the doctrine inside isn't sound. Those are the type of books that we're trying to avoid. You've done a whole series of videos on a variety of topics, and I'm sure you've built quite an audience at this point. Do you get feedback from viewers about books they're concerned about or questions that have been raised in their minds? Definitely. We definitely have readers um, contacting us and saying, hey, watch out for this author. Or, you know, on the flip side, we have people contact us and say, hey, we like this author. What are you doing? (laughs) Who Uh are you to say that this author is not good? Yeah, and I do appreciate that because, you know, it's a learning process. We are just learning all the time. And if someone has a good tip or good information that's helpful, we want to hear it for sure. What are your recommendations for evaluating a Catholic book? If if somebody is uh, interested in exploring the faith more deeply, but uh, you don't want them to be led astray, how would you advise them? Well, I definitely say make sure the author is Catholic. Make sure the publisher is Catholic. You know, it's helpful sometimes to go online and read reviews. I know that, you know, Amazon or Google reviews is not the be-all, end-all, but it can give you a really good feel if, the, you know, it, does this book have any problematic issues. A good thing to do a lot of times is ask someone you know and trust for a good recommendation. That's always a good starting point. Ask your priest, you know, what do you recommend for me? Now, you've been doing these videos for some time. Uh, Your site is called Catholic Mom and Daughter. What other kinds of topics do you deal with? We talk about books. We talk about cooking. I homeschool both my kids, so we have quite a few videos on homeschooling. We talk about things like the Miraculous Medal, different Catholic road trips we've taken. So just a variety of things to do with living the Catholic life. What's your background? My background is that I'm actually a veterinarian, and I retired from that to homeschool my children. So, And then that led into starting a YouTube channel during the pandemic because everyone was home, and we were looking for something fun and interesting to do. So that's how we got started. Ah. Well, where can people find your materials? Uh, They can go to your site and maybe find out about your book recommendations. Where do they look? 
you can find us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can go right to YouTube to our channel site, Catholic Mom and Daughter. Jennifer Waldike, Catholic Mom and Daughter. Hey, thanks very much for being with us. Your uh, thoughts about books are very useful, and I'm sure they'll be helpful to a lot of people. Thank you. I enjoy being here. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.